Hello and welcome to Office Hours, a podcast about campus politics in the end times. We're your hosts, Laura and David. Today we're sharing interviews with two student activists involved in pro-Palestine organizing on their campuses. Instead of our usual format where we bring all of our guests together for a discussion, today we're bringing you two interviews back to back. The guests focus on the ongoing repression that activists are facing on their campuses. And as our listeners may know, anti-Palestinian repression on campuses is intensifying. At the time that we're recording this intro, Rutgers has just suspended its SJP chapter and the Department of Education is launching an investigation into organizing on multiple campuses. Our first guest is Janine Massoud, a law student at Rutgers University, member of the National Lawyers Guild and a Palestine solidarity activist for over a decade. Our second guest is going by X and is a law student and student organizer at UCLA School of Law. Also uh, a note on our interview with X, due to the intense climate of harassment and doxing of pro-Palestine organizers currently, X has asked that her voice be distorted in order to protect her identity. So if you're wondering why the audio sounds a little strange, that's why. Let's turn to our interview with Janine now. Welcome, Janine, to Office Hours. Let's start by just having you introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about your organizing background, personal history, if you think it's relevant, and um, your school affiliation. Thanks for having me. My name is Janine Massoud. I'm a third-year law student at Rutgers in Newark. I'm half Palestinian, half Iraqi. I currently organize with the National Lawyers Guild, which is a group of radicals, leftist lawyers, and legal workers, as well as law students who are using the law in service of people. And I've been organizing in the Palestine Solidarity Movement in a variety of spaces on a number of levels for the last 10 years. So what are the kinds of projects and campaigns or demonstrations, whatever it is that you're working on right now? A lot of what we're trying to do on campus is, you know, struggle on a lot of fronts, pushing the administration and the university to support all of its students when it comes to one-sided statements and selective choices around what students are going to receive support, consciousness raising with law students to stop a genocide, or why is that they should care about stopping a genocide? direct actions to really to force people's hands and to say we need to take action on this and honoring the lives and memories of the Palestinian martyrs who have been lost in the last at this point 55 days of genocide. So all of the things that we can do, all of the struggles and all the friends that we can do to stop a genocide. Um, You've also talked a little just when we were speaking before recording just about undergrads kind of being in the forefront of this movement. And I'm just curious to know a little more about the Students for Justice in Palestine chapter at Rutgers. And if you could speak at all just to what kind of work the undergrads have been doing and and how you know, that's been received on campus? Undergraduate students are the engine of the movement, just like they're the engine of most leftist causes. Um, It's always students who are pushing the boundaries of what's acceptable, pushing the boundaries of polite discourse, and are really challenging the status quo, I think, in every space. I've also worked with students. I was an organizer with Students for Justice in Palestine on the campus level, Um, regional level, city level, and then also national level with National Students for Justice in Palestine. Started a divestment campaign when I was an undergrad, divestment campaign that ended up winning. 
after I graduated three times over, which was really great to see because we know that these things build on each other. The undergrads at Rutgers on um, all the campuses are doing great things and really walking in the legacy and the path of, of the last, uh, let's say, thir 15 years of, of Palestine solidarity organizing in, in this iteration um, under the coordination of National SJP. All of these chapters are independent and um, independently organized. National SJP is simply a coordinating body, but this is the second iteration or third, depending on when you start history, because prior we had the General Union of Palestinian Students in the early 2000s. They're, they're doing direct actions. They're challenging the administration. They have a divestment campaign. They've expanded their divestment campaign that was prior just aimed at, of course, companies that are complicit in Israeli apartheid and abuses of Palestinian human rights. But they've since expanded it into an endowment justice collective and coalition that is working with a variety of um, minority groups and um, BIPOC groups, queer groups that are focusing on how it is that Palestinian liberation is part and parcel of all of our liberation. You know, we can't get free until all of us are free. And it's really, really heartening to see, not just at Rutgers campus, but at campuses across the nation, these really broad-based coalitions leveraging Palestinian liberation to really raise all types of leftist causes, all types of, of associations that just simply aren't really aren't aren't getting the attention and um, organizing that they really deserve. At my alma mater at um, Columbia and Barnard, the same thing happened. We have an active divestment campaign, Columbia University Apartheid Divest, that has since grown to be just Columbia SJP JVP to now over a hundred organizations, all talking about not just divestment from Israeli apartheid, but really talking about how is it that we can use our universities to really reflect our values and hold them to account if these are institutions that say they're here to serve their students, that say that they're at the forefront of respecting human rights, that um, encourage their students to become the leaders to do better in this world. How is it they can do this when our tuition dollars are funding all sorts of gross human rights abuses? I want to go back to you. You said that the struggles happening on multiple fronts, and I just want to touch base on one of them. You had said um, you mentioned direct actions. You mentioned consciousness raising, but you also mentioned kind of pushing at your at administration to create an environment that you know is is recognizing people's humanity and creating a you know an educational space that's welcoming and and all of that. How successful have you all been on your campus on that regard? And what's been going on specifically at, at Rutgers Newark regarding that that part of the struggle? And we've been unsuccessful, I would say, but not for lack of trying. Universities everywhere are sites of struggle and also sites of repression. I also was the intern with Palestine Legal this past semester. And we've received over 600 calls for assistance where we normally get 100 to 200 in a year, just in the last 55 days. Universities are making choices about what perspectives they want to maintain and protect. And that is unfortunately falling on identity lines. The Zionist movement has weaponized Judaism and Jewish faith in order to offer cover for gross human rights abuses and 
and a genocide, which is so sickening. Um, we were the targets of a doxing campaign from our peers, people that we are in classes with, that we share spaces with, that we call our colleagues. And we received screenshots from whistleblowers about multiple doxing campaigns, as well as plans to dox Palestinian students and members of the NLG. We wow. went to the administration. We said, this is happening. Um, we've been telling you for the past two weeks that because of really one-sided statements coming from the highest offices of the university, you're giving license to Zionists and pro-Israel students on campus to do whatever they want. There's a target on our back. When you have the president of the university talking only about the horrendous loss of civilian life from Israelis and using Islamophobic, inciting, racist language to talk about Hamas, and yet never mention the thousands of Palestinians who are dying at the hands of the state of Israel, you're making choices and you're taking a stance and you're also saying, by extension, that there are no Palestinian victims. If you make no mention of Palestinian civilians, are any Palest can any Palestinians be considered civilians? So of course, of course, that's going to give license to students to say, well, if these students support Palestinians and there's no Palestinian civilians, then they must be supporting terrorism. And that's exactly what happened. Um, two students were doxxed. Um, and we had, again, a screenshot from a whistleblower who found it so abhorrent and disgusting, the things that were happening on campus. And then there was an entire brazen discussion to dox the members of the National Lawyers Guild one by one to spread our names, our faces, our associations, our addresses, talk to our employers in the attempts or in 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 pursuit of making sure that we didn't we could not find employment. And that was the explicit aim, the explicit aim of this conversation was, and I quote from one of the text messages from one of this, the pro-Israel students, if you don't want your employers to know, then you shouldn't support, you should shut up and not support terrorism. We went to the university, we went to our administration, we said, hey, this is happening, you need to do, you need to do something. Um, you need to say, our students are not terrorists, that we don't take a side, you know, we and we told them, you don't have to take a side. We don't need you to be champions of the Palestinian cause, but you do need to do right by your students and say that even if we don't support Palestine, they have every right to advocate for Palestine on this campus. Not only is this a law school where we teach the First Amendment as the right to all of your rights, as the most important of all of our rights as Americans, um, the foundation of our curriculum in law schools, not only is this part of the, the First Amendment, but we also have an obligation to all of our students to ensure that their voices are heard here. They said, put in a complaint, that's all we can do. We put in multiple complaints because there's multiple people who in, in the National Lawyers Guild, as, as well as multiple people who are not in the National Lawyers Guild who were doxxed and nothing happened. Um, no, no updates. When we ask for updates, they say we're working on it. Meanwhile, two of the students who were involved in this doxing campaign are members of the student government. We asked student government to impeach them because um, doxing is, is cyber harassment. That's a crime in New Jersey. It's a violation of the Rutgers Student Code of Conduct. It's also a violation of the constitution of the student government. We said, hey, 
you guys should run an impeachment motion because they should not be using their positions as a bully pulpit. And what happened? One of these students who is pro-Israel and Jewish put in one complaint for anti-Semitism and the entire student government was suspended. So this student had alleged that the student government was anti-Semitic. And this is something that we see not just at Rutgers, but across the country and across spaces. Palestinians and their allies are constantly maligned as anti-Jewish or as terrorists for simply criticizing Israel's policies, something that we know to be completely untrue and unfounded. So here we see that swift interim action can be taken and is taken when Jewish students who are pro-Israeli say that they feel unsafe, yet when there is documented admissions as well as proven demonstrations of actual incidents of doxing, which is expressly intended to invite harm to students, silence. Wow, that's, that's a really damning example. So the administration suspended the entire student government? It Technically, it was the Office of Student Conduct which is more centralized. It's not just the law school, it's above the law school, but it was, this was the organi- This was the, the body to which we meet our complaints as well. And it's not that they don't work in coordination with the law school. Um, but yes, it was, it's a very, really, really, very clear double standard. Absolutely. And just for, just for our listeners, when you say a whistleblower, do you, what, what do you mean is happening? Like somebody who is also on kind of text threads that these doxing campaigns are happening is then releasing that info to you all is what's happening there yeah the two whistleblowers were students who um and so these were other jewish students and they're saying this is horrendous these are not jewish values even if i support israel i don't support targeted harassment of palestinians and their allies and they two separate two separate students two separate incidents two separate doxing campaigns, both leaked out. I guess I wanted to move towards just asking you a little bit about the bigger picture. You know, you've been involved in a struggle for Palestine for a decade. Um, It sounds like you've been part of so many different organizations. How do you feel about what's happening in the current moment? You know, obviously, that's a hard question because there's there's so you know the the context for everything is absolutely horrific and and kind of impossible to even comprehend um and then at the same time we're seeing this kind of unprecedented organizing so i don't know how how do you make sense of that what do you think we should be hoping for moving forward i'm definitely having a lot of full circle moments because i have been doing it doesn't feel like a long time to me but reflecting back and looking at my peers I realize it is quite a long time um when I first started organizing with students for justice in Palestine as an undergrad at 19 years old I with a group of other students in SJP we put up a banner um that said stand for justice stand for Palestine it went through all the proper procedures all the proper channels and because of because of Zionist outcry on and off campus, the administration ended up taking it down. This was a private university, so they, you know, there's no right to free speech there. But it was very clear, not content neutral, but content based viewpoint discrimination, because 
they didn't want Palestinians to speak. And of course, there's no way for you to pass the red face test and silence just Palestinians. So they sil- their answer to that was to silence everyone. So it was a uh, for 60 years, students had been able to use this one forum as a, as a base of expression for all manner of political and non-political messages. And because Palestinians elected to use this forum that avail- that's available to everybody, they silenced everyone. And nine years later, the same thing is happening. And I'm, in, I'm how is it that I'm, I'm seeing this twice? At, at, at Rutgers Law, the National Lawyers Guild, the Law Students for Justice in Palestine, and the Muslim Law Students put up a memorial to the 6,000, then 11,000, then 13,500 Palestinians who were martyred in Israel's genocidal attacks on Gaza in a part of the law school that had historically been used for student expression. And again, because of outcry, from students because of outcry from faculty and because of outcry or or pushback from the upper echelons of the university, our memorial was censored not once, not twice, but three separate times. And this is a public institution. So we do have the right to freedom of speech. The First Amendment and the Constitution does apply. This is state action for all of the the law students and lawyers who are listening today. and we 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 said, hey, what is going on here? The the university or the administration conceded this wasn't coming from the law school. This was a decision that was coming from general counsel for the entirety of Rutgers University. How they got involved, we have no idea. They said they we got them to concede that actually, yeah, there were no policies that we violated. There were no policies that actually applied to us, and any policies that did apply to us are not enforced on anybody at the law school except Palestinians and their their allies. We were the first and the last people to have these this policy that they cited enforced against us. And yet still, they took our memorial down. And yet still, they desecrated the memory of 13,500 Palestinian dead. I had professors come up to me afterwards because we were trying to mobilize faculty in, in support of us and to push back against this constitutional violation, this gross violation of of our our First Amendment rights. And I had a number of faculty say to me, you know, Janine, I've never seen this happen. This has never happened on Newark's campus. I have never seen any other student group do this or have this happen to them. And I just, I, I couldn't help but laugh because this is the second time this has happened to me personally. And I know, not just because of my experience, with Palestine Legal, not just because of my my 10 years in movement, but also because my eyes are open. I see this happening everywhere. It is not just us who are facing repression of the most, of that's more reminiscent of McCarthyism in the 60s than anything else. Um, so it's, it's disheartening because so much of the repression has stayed the same and we still see power allying with power. But there are some things that can offer that offer me some some light in the darkness. Um, and there's a lot of darkness. It's really, really, really tough, especially as a Palestinian, especially someone who's been doing this for so long. We've been fighting the same fight for 75 years. We've been saying the same thing for 75 years. And 
one night I came home and I was hysterically crying, like hysterically crying. And my, my aunt and my mom, both on my Iraqi side were so concerned. They were so scared that something had happened to my family in Palestine. They had no idea what was going on. And I was, I was like, the world is going to watch us die. And they're going to let this happen to us. And no one's going to say anything. And my aunt, after she was done, not berating me, but lightly invalidating me, being like, what is your crying going to do for the Palestinians? She told me something that actually did make me feel better. She said, you know, Janine, because what I was saying was that our years are going to be, our seminal years as Palestinians are going to be 1948, 1967, and 2023. And that all of these experiences that we were supposed to leave in our past, we're seeing broadcasted in 1080p. I'm seeing Palestinians living in tents again with cell phones in their hand. Nightmare of nightmares, things that are just so horrible and so indescribably bad. I, I just have no words. So after I had said this to her, she said, you know, Janine, that might be true. But think about it in 1967. Was there anybody out in the streets when your dad became a refugee? Was there anybody? There, there are now thousands going out to protests. There are thousands who are pushing back. There are thousands losing their jobs. There are thousands that are putting their livelihoods on the line. There are thousands speaking out everywhere for this in ways that we just didn't we just didn't have before we didn't even have this 10 years ago so it is awful it's terrible it's indescri- like awful and terrible are not enough to describe how horrendous this is to watch as a palestinian as a human being with any sort of moral courage or moral compass but we've never had this many people recognize and see and believe and hear and say no that's a really beautiful perspective yeah and um it's a, it's a lot to hold all of those different feelings at once. Thank you so much for sharing. Is is there anything yeah. else that you, you want to share before we wrap up? David, were you going to ask anything? No, I wasn't going to ask anything. Mm-hmm. I was just, you know, just going to say like, yeah, thank you for sharing. And, yeah. you know, I think, you know, we, we, we understand that it's like the hope doesn't change the depth of, of how the, bad the situation the is. You know, but we are, you know, we do focus here on kind of the nuts and bolts of organizing and of what political action can accomplish. So that what you offered, I think, is really important um, for for myself, but for our listeners as well. It's, it's thinking of my daughter who um, keeps getting mad at being taken to protests and whether they're right. Well, are they valuable? And, and it's always a question. Is it, you know, is it valuable to go out and do this? And a statement like that you know, reiterates that it is valuable in a lot of ways when it isn't immediately apparent. And so anyway, but 
So I was just thinking about it as a as an as a parent to a young child as well. So And I mean, I'm also half Iraqi and Yeah. I know this was the thing that was on I know it was on my aunt's mind and on my mom's mind. The largest anti-war protests that ever happened were in support of or excuse me, against the invasion of Iraq. And even despite the global mobilizations, even despite all of the dissenters, all of the incredibly courageous people who really took a lot of risks to try to stop what was happening, the invasion still happened. And Iraq is still recovering from these immense scars of US war. But it, we get to say that their dissent and their refusal was enshrined in history. That it's not that the world sacrificed Iraqis on the altar of American imperialism. It's that power did, but the people of the world stood up with moral fortitude and said no. So I think it it means a lot. And it was also very, it was really, it was, she delivered it with a slap, but it was very welcome. Well, thank you so much for talking with us, Janine. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate the space. Let's turn now to our interview with X, a law student and student organizer at UCLA School of Law. Welcome to Office Hours, X. Um, can you introduce yourself and just let our audience know a little bit about, about who you are and, and what you're working on? Yeah, hello. Um, thanks for having me here. Um, I'm X. I am a current law student and student organizer at UCLA School of Law and an alumni of UC Berkeley. And we'd love to start today's conversation hearing a bit about the climate on campus at UCLA and the kind of things that are happening to undermine undermine students' ability to learn and thrive. Yeah, it's been um, really intimidating times. Um, I think nationally at all law schools, it's been an issue. There's been a huge issue with repression of free speech and like discussion of Palestine and what is going on. Um, so I think six students nationally, six law students have lost their job offers for the summer from major law firms because of discussing this issue. Um, students for justice in Palestine and Jewish Voices for Peace at a lot of law schools have been suspended or disbanded. Um, so for instance, I think Columbia had that issue as well as um, the University of Florida, I want to say, and um, there were a couple others, and there have been, I think, four students at this point who have been either run over or shot in attempted murders for either like wearing a kafia or attending a protest in support of Palestine. And um, thankfully at UCLA, we haven't had... <laughs> any violent attempts, um, but there has been a lot of repression of free speech and attacks on students in support of Palestine. Um, we've mostly had a lot of doxing attempts. Um, to date, there have been, I believe, 22 that have been reported, um, and some of these are ending up on Instagram. Um, a great deal of them are coming from current students who are just filming their peers um, in the hallways or in our courtyard. Um, there have also been like some stalking 
attempts, a lot of harassment. Um, I had a friend who was studying in the library at 8 p.m. And um, this man, not a law student, just came in and started harassing her for half an hour until security stepped in. But that was just the security that we have in the library. There hasn't been any further measures to protect the security of students, and there have been no disciplinary measures for the harassment, doxing, stalking that has been happening. Um, on the greater UCLA campus, there have also been far more attacks on students, um, both Hijabi students, Middle Eastern, um, um, Muslim students, and especially Palestinian students. I remember as of I want to say late October, there had been at least 40 counts of attacks on Muslim students. And I'm sure since then that number has only increased. Um, we've also had students calling other students terrorists for participating in protests, for using the term anti-Zionist or intifada. Um, we've had students call cops on protesters. And despite reporting these to the dean and to administrators, um, despite pointing out that like one student alone has been responsible for three direct doxing attempts, there have been no measures of discipline. Um, and on the contrary, it feels like the administration has been really has really been feeding into these. Um, the administration has really been fostering an environment that is kind of conducive uh, to all of this. Um, the messaging that has come from them has been very focused on combating terrorism, painting Palestinians as terrorists, um, painting any discussion of the violence and the genocide and ethnic cleansing and apartheid as anti-Semitic, um, going so far as to call the term anti-Fada anti-Semitic, or saying that from the river to the sea is anti-Semitic. Um, and there have also been a lot of like uh, efforts from professors at UCLA to to prevent students from speaking out about this issue. Um, so for instance, we have one professor who has gone so far as to like request public records, um, public records from the university on students supporting this issue so that he can send those names to Canary Mission. Um, we've had also student journalists at the Daily Bruin fired for attempting to cover protests related to this issue on campus or even just talk about like the context of what is going on. Um, as an alumni of UC Berkeley, I remember being there and having faculty members who went to a free Palestine rally not have their contracts renewed. We also had this really cool program called the DECAL program, um, which stands for Democratic Education at the University of California. And through that program, we had classes that students could organize and teach themselves. Um, so we would develop the curriculum for the class, submit all the paperwork. It was a really like lengthy, detailed process and approval wasn't like necessarily easy, but as long as you put in the effort, classes were generally approved. And it, they covered a range of topics from like animal psychology to Game of Thrones and Harry Potter and um, just all sorts of things. Um, so there was this one class that was supposed to be taught on Palestinian history and it was approved. It had faculty sponsors. The day the class was supposed to start rolled around at the beginning of the semester. And an hour before the class started, there was a letter from the chancellor sent out saying that, no, actually, this class will not be held by any means. So there's been kind of this like long history of repression around this topic. Um, and 
over the past few months, it's really picked up and it's been impacting students in a really negative way where I have friends who are doxxed publicly um, who have received hundreds, if not a thousand at this point, um, death threats and who haven't been coming to class for like the past few months, who stopped coming to class in October and who are afraid to be on campus. And there, there just hasn't been any action to, to make them feel safe here or to make them feel more supported. Um, yeah, so that that's just the context of what's been going on here. I mean, I want to say I'm surprised, but I'm, I mean, I, that seems, those are the, that's definitely, you know, consistent with what I've been hearing. It's still, it's really awful to hear, you know, to hear the extent of that. Um, I'm wondering if you wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, what you'd like to see the university doing to um, keep students safe. And my understanding from our chatting is that it seems like students are are already trying to organize to pressure the administration to do more. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so I think a really big ask for us right now is to protect students. Um, and, you know, we've been having attacks both from students at the law school and just members of the public who have been coming onto campus and like filming students through windows. So I think a really basic thing that the administration can do is in the same way that it prevents the public from entering like the law school library, it could have like a security check at the entrances of the law school. And we have little blue wallets that indicate that we're law students. Um, and, you know, just check to see if a student has a blue wallet before letting them in. I think it would also be really important to see the school take some concrete steps to enforce the no filming policy that we have. Um, you know, they've sent out a couple of reminders saying, like, filming is not allowed. But again and again, we're seeing the same people filming students, and that's just not okay. So it would be great to have somebody, um, you know, just around during protests or maybe just, like, in the courtyard who is, like, enforcing that rule from the administration or from security. They bring in cops every time there's a protest. Why can't they bring in somebody to, to enforce the no filming rule? Um, and I think also, it would be really great to see messaging that isn't just framing this as a terrorist issue and anti-Semitic and something that says, yes, like, uses the word Palestine, that talks about the attacks on Palestinian students and Arab students and Muslim students, and, you know, acknowledges this also as a giant human rights issue and racial justice issue. At the law school, we have what are supposed to be really great programs on critical race studies and human rights. We're known for our Promise Institute and for human rights. And it's really, really heartbreaking and disappointing um, to see how much silence has come out of those institutions um, and how much this is just being swept under the rug as, as not important and as not an issue of genocide or apartheid and it's just being painted as a conflict and a war when th that's really just not the case. What I mean by this is not a war or a conflict is this isn't a traditional war um, 
where you have two roughly equal sides um, fighting over contested territory. This is a situation where we had two states established according to the UN decades ago, and since then there has been a constant encroachment of the land that one of those states occupied and the constant move of settler colonialism and this pattern of mowing the grass every couple of years, which is a term that is used um, in Israel, where that land is constantly being expanded and the people who are living there have been living there for centuries or are being injured and killed taken off and so especially considering like the death toll on all of this has been so heavily one-sided um i I really think of this as an issue um not of a traditional war conflict but just a settler colonial expansion i'm just curious about how you think that all of this is affecting the movement on campus and if you feel like it's having a chilling effect, how are students and faculty and staff responding? Do you feel like people are, you know, continuing to mobilize um, despite all of the repression and and just in general, what you see maybe going forward in the next months at UCLA? Yeah, I think um, the response has been pretty mixed from from the activist communities, from students and faculty. I think in a lot of ways it has been good in that it's it's mobilized a lot of people to be more active. I think a lot of law students and law professors and people in this field came into it because they wanted to advocate for justice and for international law. And to kind of see all of that um, in shambles is really motivating in a lot of ways. Um, in terms of, I think, who is being vocal, there there's kind of a lot of factors going on there. Um, I think for a lot of faculty, like tenure plays a big role in the stance of the director of their department. Um, so some of our biggest advocates, like UN Special Rapporteur and UCLA Law Professor Tendai Chume and Labor and Economic Justice Professor Noah Zatz, you know, are tenured and they've been able to like make really great stances. At the same time, I think some of the advocates who are faculty members don't have that tenure but you know this is just so important to them that they they are making a stance um so that's been really great to see in terms of student involvement a lot of i think apprehension about being involved has come from our international students um understandably they have a lot of a lot more to worry about in terms of their visas and, you know, deportation and, like, not being able to get a job after they graduate. Um, So being involved has been a lot more risky for them, not only just with, like, law students for Palestine, UCLA Law, SJP, UCLA Law, JVP, but even just um, being involved with student organizations who are willing to acknowledge the issue has been a huge, huge barrier. So, for instance, we have a lot of um, identity affiliation orgs on campus. We have, um, for instance, Latino law students, law association, the Black law students, law association, um, the Middle Eastern, North African law students association, the Women of Color Collective. And I think a lot of the members of these organizations, like, want to present themselves as allies. But even just the issue of, like, putting up a flyer on our bulletin boards is something that makes a lot of students really nervous um, and they just don't want to be associated with an organization that is is making any form of political stance 
were showing any acknowledgement. And it, it doesn't come from a place of like disagreement most of the time. It's just, you know, law firms have been so emphatically motivated to to take action on on perceived anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism. And so, you know, we've had 24 major law firms who have publicly stated that they are not going to hire or they're going to cancel job offers to students who who present who are perceived as um, anti-Semitic, even if it's just, you know, talking about Palestine. <laughs> um, so because of that, like, a lot of students just don't want to be associated with any organization that makes a stance. So I've seen a lot of board members of these organizations and members of these organizations um, quit their positions, um, remove themselves from the organizations. And then, you know, it, it really, it's really heartbreaking um, to see that because it also increases loss of community for them, you know, and it gives them fewer spaces where they feel safe within the law school. And, um, you know, these are organizations that they're really passionate about and really want to be a part of and have dedicated a lot of, of time and commitment to um, that it just, and it just feels too risky to continue to be involved with those. So that's been really tough. Yeah, I think that show, shows the the climate of repression, right? Groups that allegiances and solidarity across differences that um, kind of come out of that type of dynamic with you know student orgs that are identity-based and caucus-based groups having that split uh, and fragmentation that's that's really disheartening to hear and my hope is that there are ways that people are clandestinely trying to support each other, lift each other up. And, and I know that's not as powerful often as if it's public, um, but are you seeing ways that people are kind of working off of the publicly FOIA-able channels and trying to create spaces of solidarity and things of that nature that could potentially blossom into something else? Is, is, is there stuff like that going on? Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, I think most student orgs have moved to using Signal just because it's encrypted, and that's been a really great means of communication. Um, but there have also just been a lot more check-ins with one another, a lot of checking in in class, checking in on messaging, um, you know, taking every few days to, to just see how people are doing, especially those most impacted by all of this, and that's been really heartwarming. Yeah, there's... There's always the gift of the sense of community and solidarity that does come from taking a personal risk, you know, and, and making that choice together. Yeah. What do you think like our listeners can do to support you all or participate in the struggle in a relevant way? You know, I, um, that's a great question. And I think our alumni have also just been so supportive. Um, some of the things that they have been doing and that I think, the public and listeners can all do that would really help us out a ton and would be writing letters to administrations of schools. It could be UCLA or it could be any other school, um, vocalizing that if they're worried about funding, well, if they continue to repress free speech, then maybe that's a cause for a loss of donations. I think um, there were one or two schools where their alumni focused particularly on not donating because of all of this and they lost like 13 million or something like that um so yeah i think um 
I think contacting school administrations and and vocalizing how important it is to maintain free speech, to um, acknowledge violations of international law, and to protect students would be really valuable. And I, th- I think this is one of those issues where on the other side, there's individual donors with enough clout and enough power, right? Where they can they can influence through just individual decision making, where on the, the supportive side that you're describing, it really does take a bit of collective action on the part of alumni. Like ha- having that collective power, the, the monetary side could, could very much be influential, whereas maybe there isn't one donor who can say in this case, you know, support Palestinian students or I won't you know, donate. I'll pull all my money. Yeah, yeah. So there's that, there's the the asymmetry, right, in the alumni power, but people overcoming that asymmetry through, through collective action, which is very cool to see. Absolutely. And I think like, moreover, this really hurts the reputation of a lot of schools and their programs, right? If you have a human rights program that isn't treating this as a serious human rights issue, or Mm -hmm race studies program that isn't treating this as a major issue i think those are huge problems and are really going to detract from the number of students who want to go to your schools and be a part of those programs yeah and we know that i mean the numbers really show that young people have much more you know they have they have better politics they are much more supportive of palestine they're seeing the hypocrisy and the cowardice of you know, these, these programs, these administrators, and I do agree, I agree, I think that they're going to be really turned off. It makes me think of the the internationalization that is happening in a lot of U.S. higher ed, right, this promotion of where we're, we are internationally focused, and we're serving international students, but here in the Palestinian cause element, other people are paying attention, right? Are, do I want to go to your school? Do I want to travel? Do I want to be a student there? Um, if you have, if you're suppressing Palestinian speakers, pro-Palestine orgs, yeah. And it sort of speaks to what U.S. institutions need to be if they're going to serve a, a larger public. Of course, I know cynically, it's like they want the dollars rather than the duties, right? <laughs> like, So I don't know. That is so true, though. I have so many international LLM student friends who are here from Indo-Aryan countries or Middle Eastern, North African countries. And this is, um, it has been such a more disappointing experience. Okay, well, well, thank you so much. Um, Yeah, I really appreciate you taking the time in the, like we were saying in the middle of with everything that's going on, um, just to talk to us. So yeah, take care. Bye. Our theme music is by Nigel Weiss. Our artwork is by Arthur Kay. You can find more of their artwork at rotradio.tumblr.com. We would love it if you subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. Rate and review us on all the major platforms. Thanks for listening. Bye.